this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This week's episode is brought to you by us at Book Riot. We are giving away a $500, that's right, $500 gift card to the bookstore of your choice. This giveaway is open internationally through November 26th, so you have a while to enter. But why would you wait? Because we're talking about 500 bones to buy books. Go to bookriot.com slash bookstore giveaway, all one word, to enter. That's bookriot.com slash bookstore giveaway to enter to win a $500 gift card to the bookstore of your choice. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 232. We're recording on Thursday, October 19th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Hello. Actually, a lot of news this week. Um, but I have to say, the thing I'm most excited to talk about... Oh, you know what? I just realized... Okay, good. You put it in there. Never mind. Never mind. I, I, I had something I was going to make sure it was in there. And I, <laughs> Anyway, uh, I, I didn't... I was looking at the agenda before, and I just skimmed over to the Vita account. I was like, wait, do we put it in there? Yeah, mm. it's there. Okay, perfect. Oh, um, yeah. Wouldn't miss the Vita account. Because uh, I think that's one of the things that we always look for. This time of year, we always want to look at, we'll, we'll dive deep into that in a second. But as some follow-up uh, about things we've been talking about, Dan Brown, Rupi Kaur, so on and so forth, I was looking at BookScan sales data this week um, mm. in the form of Publishers tell me, tell Weekly, me. and then I, I had a couple of little birdies. I consulted on some things. Because we, we wondered, how would these books, are these books, you know, Dan Brown, what's the state of the Dan Brown franchise? You know, what's the state of, <laughs> Rupi, you know, is it going to translate for Rupi Kaur? There's other things going on too, a lot of big books. Are out. I think at this point, tell me if I'm wrong, most of the big books of the fall, on the fiction side at least, are pretty much out. Like you usually try to get them out by mid-October. It's rare you have something coming out in November, December. There's some other good titles, but in terms of you have a big book you think is going to sell six digits or more, you're trying to get that thing out so it's available for the whole fall book buying season. I'm sure there's some, there's some examples there. Um, let's see. Let's go with so Dan Brown. Number one on the um, hardcover fiction list, no surprise, one week in, 145,000 copies, which All right. is a, you know, that's a really good number. Um, the next number uh, on the list, uh, Sleeping Beauties by the King, Father, and Son, um, sold 37,000 copies. It's been out for a couple weeks. So really, it... it Six times, basically, no, five times, basically mm -hmm. the the number two list. Um, another good one I thought was interesting here to see Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan. We had we had wondered about. It. It's been a long time since Visit from the Goon Squad. We were saying it like felt like a different era in um, in in Bookland in the book. Well, the book internet as we know it now did not exist in 2010. Um, there was book blogs, but like it's just a completely different world now. That book came out in 2010, um, and really. It, it on release it only sold like a thousand copies in its first week it was actually worse than her her uh, second book the keep which came out in 2016 or excuse hmm. me 20 uh, 2006 now again a visit from the goon squad had like a it had momentum it built over time won some awards and really picked up but 
um, the Manhattan Beach this week sold 13,000 copies. So people came okay. for Egan, uh, number six on the list. Like, not a huge, huge one, but, you know, um, a good a good result there. Let's see. Oh, there's something else I was going to mention on the fiction list. I guess that's it um, for now. Yeah. Uh, on the nonfiction side, um, what happened... The Hillary Rodham Clinton book mm-hmm. still chugging along, number two still. Uh, it's it sold three hundred forty one thousand copies to this point. It's really selling very well. Uh, the new Taniasi Co- um, Coates book came out this week, and it sold two hundred uh, excuse me twenty eight thousand copies in its first week, which is Good also a very nice result for him. Uh, I'm just I'm looking down here. Boy, you know what sold well this year on nonfiction side? Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Four hundred and seven thousand copies um, so far this year. Really, a really how? great result. How, how, how that's I mean, that's amazing. It's an amazing how? result. I know. I know. It, it's an amazing result. I mean, he's a big he's a big draw. I mean, I read it, you read it. Like it's just one of those things that that's people true. came for. Um, let's go over to the uh, trade paperback um, so that we can check in on um, I you know I didn't think about this while we're talking about Rupi Kaur last week why not make this a hardback it's a paperback that they're selling for Mm -hmm. $16.99 yeah it's a weird move right why not make it a hardback at $24.99 anyway um, uh, any Her ideas? demographic is younger I think it's smart well Milk and Honey was paperback I I know Um, I know but like you could I'd be. I'd like to A/B test the universe of how many copies sell at twenty six ninety five. Like a full literary fiction, you know, big nonfiction release. Um, I don't know, man. I I think it's pretty smart actually to like not tempt. Not I mean, not tempt fate, but when you sell literally a million copies of a book of poetry, mm-hmm. like, do you really want to reach and be like, well, we already did a really like lightning struck once with selling a million copies of a book mm-hmm. of poetry. Do you really want to like try to replicate that with a second book, which is a lesser known quantity? Like, will the momentum continue and ramp the price up? Like you're mixing some variables there. So you've got confounding factors. Yeah. I, I, I just... think it's smart. Like mm-hmm. people like those, like they have the paperback on their shelf. People like it when the books are the same size. Like we've heard this from people at Book Riot that like they'll if a series has multiple versions they have to buy mm-hmm. you know all the version all the same versions of like the Harry Potter books or all the same versions of the Lord of the Rings series or whatever so that it you know it looks nice when the books are all together on your shelf I mean there's certainly an argument to made for if it ain't broke don't fix it um, on yep. selling it this way I just looked at that I'm like wow you really you really could have. I mean, you could have. You could have gone that way, or you could have gone another way, which a way we've talked about before. And some there's some of this to the lesser extent. Actually, I saw there's some images of the Waterstone special edition of Philip Pullman's Book of Dust, which which came out this mm-hmm. week. Beautiful. Really beautiful. This book too, since Cower, so much of her brand is style and design. Um, you, a special edition, you know, for thirty five bucks would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. Or a special edition of Milk and Honey. Or yeah, or something like that, where mm-hmm. you get some the the super fans, you know, that will they'll pony up for it. Anyway, I, I'm burying the lead here, but <laughs> um, uh, the sun and her flower sold seventy eight thousand copies in week one. Really, Ooh, uh, all right, really not too shabby. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. Um, you know, the seller of the year again. There's always one of these that nobody's talking about. Um, 
though it, it talked got talked about on the site here some, but The Woman in Cabin 10 by Ruth Ware, 487,000 copies in paperback. Hot this year. damn. That is a huge. That's huge. Number. So I guess that's this year's Girl on the Train sort of situation. Yeah, except I think it was new last year. I don't think it's a paperback oh. original. I'm sorry, this is from the 25 trade paperback list. Mm, right, um, okay. I think it was originally a hardcover, though. D- don't quote me on that. Um, but at any rate, just selling unbelievably well. And right behind it, this is a book I'm seeing on a lot of people's Instagram feeds, Lilac Girls by Martha Hall Kelly. Do you know this book at all? Have you heard of this? No, I don't. Yeah, it's it's from Ballantine. Does it have a bunch of women in like a purple field? On yeah, the it's very cover? purpley. Yeah, it's very... 426,000 copies in trade paperback there. Just oh, unbelievable. That's one, of, that, one of those book club sleepers, yep, definitely, I guess. Definitely. There's one of those every year where we're like, where did this book come from? I know. Uh, speaking of special editions, going back to the well, um, the other th- mm-hmm. the other notable book released this week, and they're doing a really smart thing, Scholastic. They're doing every fall a new one of these Harry Potter illustrated versions by, I think the guy's name is Jim K, which are really beautiful editions. I'm going to be buying them all at some point when my kids are old enough to read along um, when we get to that, Harry, because the illustrations are fantastic. But they the street price is $39.99, so they ain't cheap. And The Prisoner of Azkaban mm-hmm. came out this week, so we're in year three here. It sold 90,000 copies. Number one wow. best-selling children's front list. I mean, that, that's awesome. That's just amazing. I wonder if those are in the scholastic, uh, like, you know, book fair, school order situations. I, You know, Ames just got his school fair, um, his scholastic fair book, and I was flipping through it. It's a weird duck. That's, like, I'd forgotten how strange <laughs> those things are. Like, there's a lot of weird and paraphernalia and, like, you know, whatever. But I didn't see it there. Also, the prices okay. of the stuff in there, they... they kind of keep down like there's not much you can buy there in there for under for over 14 15 bucks Mm -hmm. um so anyway another one worth mentioning while we're we're coming to the end of the sales cycle for the year but everything everything by nicola yoon four hundred twenty thousand copies this year for that book i mean i know there was a movie but geez louise (laughs) <laughs> That's a big number. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else interesting here. Um, oh, I was going back to um, The Girl Who Takes Eye for an Eye, the David Langerkratz, the most uh, recent installment mm-hmm. of the Elizabeth Solander series. has It came out in September, um, the first week in September, is that one of those September 5 release dates? 78,000 copies so far this year. So solid, but not great, I would say. For that, um, the bit you know, oh, man, little, I fa- think that w- little fires I, everywhere by Celeste. I was Ng. expecting that one to be higher. Yeah, little fires everywhere by Celeste Ng. I think is the best-selling literary fiction novel of the fall, um, but it's only sold third. I mean, it sold a lot more than everything I never told you when it came out. Like that's a huge jump, but thirty-eight thousand copies um, so far this year. The Jean Le Carré, The Legacy of Spies, has sold seventy-five thousand copies so far this year. Um, you know. You and I are both out on John Grisham. Um, mm-hmm. I know this most recent book. I'm slightly tempted by Camino Island because I guess it's about a book theft or something. Um, and I'm deep in the throes of looking for interesting book stories for annotated, so I'm like want to read it, but I don't want to read it. But <laughs> but you also just bought like 900 volumes of yes, literary I, biography, did I talk about so this you're set. The, yeah, no, I've got plenty to read. I'm just saying. But this book, <laughs> 532 thousand copies this year since just since June. It's only been out half a year. Um, so that's John really John Grisham, sold. man. That name recognition. Yeah. Anyway. Um, got any questions about anything else that's come out that you were curious about? I mean, if it, unless it's in the top 25, I, I can't report it to you here, but anything else that uh, strikes you? Yeah, no. I'm really just happy to hear that Dan Brown started strong. Yeah. Interested to see what 
He's going to do flowers. and uh, Rupi Kaur, yeah, Kaur yeah. Kaur. I've been hearing different. I've, I've heard that she's sure. going. People have going to see her that it should be Kaur, something like that. I, I haven't Kaur. heard, but people are trying to phonetically spell it on Twitter and stuff. And I'm like, Kaur is wrong. It's more like Kaur or Kaur, Kaur something Kaur? like. I'm not sure. Um, I need to go find like see a video introduction of her to see something. Attempt. We can attempt to screw it up less than we've been screwing. Yeah. It up. The only. Um, oh, you know the big. The there's one more. I mean, there's a lot of nonfiction coming out, but the Walter Isaacson's biography of Leonardo da Vinci comes out on Tuesday, or it came out this oh, week. I've maybe. I've been forgetting about that. That's your dad book of the winter. I'm going to call oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Which be... you know, I have an alert when it's on Audible to go sign up. And yeah, buy. I meant the uh, you know the, sort of the universal you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go purchase right. the this book, but also you, Jeff O'Neill. Right. Is definitely. The platonic <laughs> ideal, of which I am only one instance. Uh, it, it's definitely that book. Um, so interesting. A lot of a lot of good books coming out. A lot of good books have been out. Um, oh, here's when yeah, I was I'm looking at my galley shelves mm-hmm. in my office right now, and I don't see anything sitting here popping out to me. That's like a remaining big book of yeah. fall. I think you are correct. Oh um, yeah, the, the Pullman is out. The Book out. of Dust came out, and the mm-hmm. Isaacson. So I think that's kind of. Yeah. We might Lots be there. Of, uh, I'm starting to look at spring. Yeah. And those books are starting to show up, and there's a lot of interesting stuff coming in the spring. But mm-hmm. I guess I'm ready. I'll go on the record now. I think the new Meg Wallitzer book is going to be a really big deal. Heard a lot of people spring. talking about it. But you know what? Yeah. That's one of those books that people like you and I hear a lot about, and you just never know. You know, well, you know, okay, so this is like in it is inside baseball, but we're talking that's about what, that's, that's, what do you think people so show like, up for here? They want this. Is, so, so we just spent 20 minutes on like the eighth best trade paperback <laughs> bestseller of the year. So the new Meg Wallitzer, it's called The Female Persuasion, mm-hmm. and it's about um, a young woman who goes off to college and has an encounter with a famous feminist who's kind of a Gloria Steinem esque character, um, and it changes her life and then she eventually becomes famous and the book is very i'm about halfway through it it showed up the other day and i was like screw waiting until april i am reading this business <laughs> right now um, who can hold on to a new meg wallitzer book for six months i cannot uh, so i'm about halfway through it and it's really great and it's very cathartic for a lot of my uh, 2017 political mm. feelings. But I think the most interesting part of the galley, and now that I'm talking about it, I wish I had brought it in here with me, um, is the letter from the publisher um, publisher or vice president or somebody at Riverhead, a, a woman, writing about how she thinks that this is a book that we're going to be talking about for generations, that if there is a great American novel Whoa. to be written in, the, in, like, mm-hmm, in like the 2000s, it is this book. Hmm. And I was like, well, that's a statement. Like I have not, I've seen a a lot of publishers make a lot of grandiose statements about galleys. And, you know, a lot of the time it's just marketing, but this was like, this is, she's like, she is committed to Hmm. like, this is, this book is going to be a big deal. I'm not to the end yet. So I don't know like where it goes that does that thing. Um, but they are, I think, beginning to talk about Meg Wallitzer as like just as literary and just as groundbreaking as say like Jonathan Franzen, uh, but mm. less, less, uh, quickly recognized because a woman who writes about woman things, um, and tells stories about people, not just the world of ideas. Um, but I, that was such a bold statement that I was like, Oh boy. Okay. Like I, I was just hoping to get a description of another great 
interesting Meg Wallitzer novel and yeah. she writes characters that are very real and very true and just has these incredible insights about humans and our relationships with each other. But that, like, if there is a great American novel happening right now, it's this one and we're going to talk about it for generations. I was like, oh, all right, well, okay, now I'm paying attention. It is interesting uh, so, that you say that because, you know, we listen, we read enough blurbs and publicity speak that we can tell when someone's excited, but also there's kind of a, there's kind of a bound on the hyperbole that's, there's kind of, mm-hmm. and, and this is, that's one of the things you wouldn't say just in the normal right. cycle, even a very good, even a very good book. You wouldn't say that's bringing out the the big gun. I mean that that this is like it's the y- biggest gun. Yeah, yeah, the Meg Howitzer, as it were. Um, but, <laughs> oh, <Jeff>. <laughs> but but you know that's something where that you and I that cro- that pushes through our normal filter for publicists speak uh, that kind of talk. It's interesting, mm-hmm. interesting to hear that. Yeah, and that it's coming from you know someone very high up at the publisher um it it did it does not feel like publicist Mm -hmm. speak to me this is because it's this is a big claim to make yeah and that's (laughs) the kind of thing that will elucidate a lot of eye rolling you know yes um, yeah you you can that's a big groundbreaking it is you can say like groundbreaking and then people can quibble about whether a book is groundbreaking or not but to just roll out like Mm -hmm. in the galleys that you're sending to media and booksellers six months before publication saying like this is this is a great american novel like capital g Mm. great american novel that we will talk about for generations was like okay like i believe it's possible because meg wallitzer is rad Mm -hmm. um but i was i have never i don't think seen that exact that kind of specific language in a uh, a galley letter from a publisher and I'm very interested in like and now I'm especially interested in how the book is going to be marketed because the galleys are early enough like there aren't bookseller blurbs in this one mm-hmm. there aren't quotes from early reviews or anything it was just like all you know is the synopsis and this letter from the publisher and so it'll be very interesting I think over the next six months to see like what does it look like as the marketing starts coming out and as people start talking about this book and it, it you're right it's a very big check to cash but they're going in. Yeah, they are. All right. So that's our look at fall sales, year-to-date sales, um, and with a little turn towards 2018, maybe later in the year before we actually flip the calendar, we'll take a look and see what we've got on our personal uh, watch lists for, mm-hmm. for the new year. But why don't you tell us about... Oh, no, I'm going to do the sponsor. This is me. I said I yes, would do you this. are. Take it away. I, I just I was like all ready to take you know a thirty second break. Uh, but I mean we can switch it. No, up. no, I can let's do this let's one. do it. Uh, okay. This episode's brought to you by the fifty seven bus by Dashka Slater. So here's what it is. It's a true story. Um, here and the the like kind of movie poster blurb goes like this: One teenager in a skirt, one teenager with a lighter, one moment that changes both of their lives forever. So a single reckless act during an eight-minute bus ride leaves one teen severely burned and the other charged with two hate crimes and facing life imprisonment. The 57 bus, is, 57 bus is Dashka Slater's true account of the case that garnered international attention and throws, thrust both high school students into the spotlight. It started as an article in New York Times Magazine, and it's you know this beautifully crafted, fast-paced writing, narrative nonfiction, makes it accessible for readers of all, all kinds of readers, whether you like you know, this kind of book, or you like more kind of YA novel type things. It's a gripping true story of an agender teen who was set on fire while riding a bus in Oakland, California, and the teen who started the fire. It makes for an excellent book club discussion. The book approaches critical hot-button issues like gender identity, race, socioeconomic disparity, forgiveness, crime, punishment, in a thoughtful and compassionate way. 
for fans of nonfiction like The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, as well as true crime aficionados, this book prevents a riveting, in-depth account of a complex case um, that a lot of people were talking about. That's The 57 Bus by Dashka Slater. Go check it out. Available now. All right. All right. Where do you want to start? What do you want to do first? We got a couple of things to, do, to a couple of big ones to go through. You know, you let's just dive right into the Vita. Camp. All right. We started in numbers corner with sales. We yep. can move over to the Vita count. I think if you're new here or you're new to paying attention to publishing, the Vita count is, uh, it began as an attempt to look at gender parity or the lack thereof in major literary publications. Mm-hmm. And uh, last year they added an intersectional component and also began to look at representation of people of various races, inclusivity basically, in literary publications. And so they look at a couple of things. They look, Vita is looking for um, the balance of male and female and non-binary now reviewers in publications, and then the balance of authors um, whose work is reviewed mm-hmm. in publications. So like at the New York Times, were the reviewers equally male and female, and were the books reviewed equally by men and women? Uh, and there's a lot of pie charts. This is yeah. like a pie chart, but bonanza every year. There's a ton of information. Um, and, and interesting, now that they have been doing this for several years, Vita um, includes some highlights and observations that they're tracking the patterns over time. I think the first one was in 2013, yep. 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. The first one I think was in 2013, maybe it was 2012. Um, but now there's enough backward looking data that they can say, okay, we have established now with data that this problem exists, mm-hmm. that many literary publications overrepresent men and underrepresent women, both in their reviewers and in whose work is reviewed. So what are they doing about it over time? And um, many publications have made some movement. So you can see information about who has moved and who hasn't. Um, Ten House is very notable. Women and non-binary writers were 51% of the overall publication this year. And in 2016, women writers contributed 65% of the features and 57% of the fiction pieces in Ten House. So that's a highlight. The London Review of Books is just the ongoing like dog of the pack. Um, they've had the worst gender disparity in the main Vita count for bylines, book reviews, and authors reviewed. Um, in 2016, only 22% of their bylines were by women. 18% of women um, who review books. Uh, okay, 18% of book reviews are by women and 26% of books by women um, reviewed in the publication. And it's been low since, oh, they say since 2010 here. So Vita's been going on longer than I remember. Mm. Um, they remain one of the few publications that's ever given space to a gender writers and um, just consistently pretty low. Like it's interesting. I remember, and you probably do too, when Vita's, when Vita first started coming out, it was like, okay, well, now that people have shown data for this, because mm-hmm. the first response, anytime you say there's a problem, like there's sexism in publishing um, or systematic bias or whatever you want to call it, people are like, well, how, how do you know? Like, mm. show me the proof. And so the proof is here um, in these counts. And since that started existing, many publications made changes the New York Times hired Pamela Paul to run mm-hmm. the book review, and she has brought in more women and diversified their coverage. I think this year, 44% of the books reviewed there were by women, yep. and the bylines were equally 
um, from men and women. So there is some movement, which means it's interesting to see who has decided not to care. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, what did you yeah. pull I mean, that's, I think that's a big takeaway is you've had time to react to this particular metric if you care, mm-hmm. right? If, you're, if you've been counted and you care, um, you've had enough time to um, trim the sails and get moving in a slightly different direction. And if you don't care, I think if you follow the stats over the last few years, you can tell who cares. Clearly, the New York Times cares. Yeah. Tin House cares. The, I don't think it's a mistake. The book reviewers, um, bylines, and the New York Times review of books, New York Times book review, I always get that mixed up with New York review of books. Screw them both. Um, is exactly 50-50. <laughs> Like that you can control from an editorial department. On the author's reviewed part, you can control it, but you have to tack against the wind of what what the breakdowns of books getting published are, right? So that's a number we still don't have of like, what's the breakdown um, of genders, either identify as men, identify as women, identify as non-binary or other. That's a number we don't have right now. So all we have is this this, um, secondary indicator of the authors being reviewed, I would guess, and I don't know, um, that since the New York Times doesn't review romance, except for once last week, which we talked about ad nauseum, and maybe they shouldn't <laughs> if they're going to do it that way, since they don't review romance, this 5644 um, men reviewed versus women reviewed, that that's probably a fairly good indicator of the break, the gender breakdown of the kind of books that the New York Times reviews. Does that make sense? Like, I'm guessing that's probably accurate. That might represent the books they're actually getting and trying to review. Now, since they don't review romance, and we know romance is a huge part of the publishing industry, that um, works against the 44% women. But of assigning reviewers, that 50-50 is... That's almost like Pamela Paul saying, we totally care about this. That's a, We totally care about this number as far as mm-hmm. I'm seeing that. Yeah, I think you can you do have to account for what the baseline availability of books by yeah, women and the books Bayesian by rate, color. as you would say, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, what those baseline rates are when you're looking at this, it, it does make it more difficult. But I also will say kind of on the flip side, it's not impossible to have gender parity oh, in coverage, no. No, even no, no, if no. an equal number of books by men and by women are not published each year. That's, it's a thing that like, it's a thing that we do mm-hmm. um, on the site. And, we do, and like I just to toot our horn a little bit, but also to talk about the fact that it's really hard. Um, we d- require list posts to have 25% of the titles in a list with, I think, f- if you have five or more items mm-hmm. in a list, you've got to have at least um, 25% need to be by people of color. And that's really, really difficult because it's such a low base rate yeah. of the books published in a given year are by people of color that you, it really requires doing the legwork to identify books that are coming out by people of color, to look at small presses, to sort of be creative about it. And that's a thing that I would love to see Mm. mainstream, huge publications that do have such reach do like you might be that might, that means you would be reviewing some books that aren't getting a lot of publicity, some books that aren't going to have like immediate title or name recognition among the readership, but you would be putting them in front of your readership and giving yourselves a chance to kind of prove that there is interest in these titles. Um, so I would, I think that's an interesting next step to propose for some of these publications is like, mm. what if you committed to parody regardless of what the baseline rates are of books coming out from publishing and you do the legwork and you really try to get there? Um, it's really tough, but, and you do end up covering things that you wouldn't have expected to cover, but I think that's good ultimately for the publication 
and for readers. Um, in the big picture, Vita. Can I just stop you real quick? Because I, I just oh, yeah. I do want to say though that I mean we shoot for twenty five percent, but also remember like that's not the base rate of the American population, right? The American population right. is about thirty three to thirty six percent. So I don't know why I'm defending the Times versus us, but I'm saying even our base rate is lower <laughs> than absolute like you know, representative representation. So, so is theirs, but they could be trying. It could be if you don't try, they're looking at, well, whatever the number were four years ago. Um, yeah. You know, maybe they do have, maybe their base rate is we wanted to be at least 33% or 40%. They're a little bit over, still below, but it could represent an effort beyond just, you know, whatever it is they're doing. So just so I want people to hear us saying when we're talking about our own, like we know that our base rate is even still below the American population at large, but that's a target we shoot for because it takes effort to get there, right? It's it's a kind of mindfulness about, okay, here's what we're looking for. Even if we're not going to do absolute um, demographic, demographic representation, it gives us a goal to say, to, to work a little bit harder, to, to find something that's not super obvious um, and presented right. and packaged to us in a way that makes it easy to do. So who knows what base rate... Uh, they're going for, um, mm-hmm. or what? I just hope they're going for a base rate. Honestly, like, yeah, there's been motion in a lot of these places, and I'm I believe that a lot of these editorial boards had meetings where they were like, oh, we have to do better. You know, mm-hmm. like we need more women, we need more people of color, um, we need to we need to do better. I would I wish that these this was a transparent conversation, or that we yeah. could be like see some kind of round table of a bunch of editors of a bunch of these publications talking about like, how did you define better? How did you get there? Like, mm-hmm. cause it, it does require effort to make these changes, especially to such longstanding traditions of d- sort of just doing the thing of putting up books by white men, um, because that's what publishing was putting forward. Um, so it, it does take a lot of work. Um, to do sort of an overall look, this year Vita reviewed 23 publications. So they don't hit all of the, they don't like, you know, hit every major literary publication. They go for sort of different slices mm-hmm. of big newspapers, literary magazines, and then some smaller ones. Um, in past years, an editor of a certain big book section has complained very publicly about like, how come our section doesn't get counted? We do a good job mm-hmm. and I want cookies, but they just can't count every Everyone this year out of those 23, 11 of them published just as many bylines by men and women writers or more by women. So that's great. That's almost half. Um, on the flip side, um, women's share of the overall pie has decreased. In 2015, 58% of the publications demonstrated gender parity, while in 2016, it dropped to 48%, having just as many bylines by women. And men, so a um, little motion in both directions there. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this because we've we've done this, and it feels like the last couple years have been the same old song. Like now, tell me if you're. It feels like a couple years ago we started to see some movement amongst some of the publications that seemed to care, the Tin House, the New York Times Book Review, and now they're to the point of caring, and the ones that don't care don't care. And doesn't mm-hmm. it feel, it feels to me like the Vita is a bit of a crossroads. Like, I, I don't know, like, there is awesome, this is awesome work that needs to be kept being done in terms of the counting. But I wonder what the next is, and it felt like it's, so, at, at one point it felt to me like the counting was almost radical, right? <laughs> like to do it this way felt radical. Mm-hmm. And now that they've been doing it for a while, it's still worth the, a worthy effort. 
But if you're if they're not gonna if the Times Literary Submit is only have four percent of respondents, you know, or no, what's the the for whatever reason the English mags are the worst. <laughs> I mean, just <laughs> on the world, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, sexism, I guess, but just like the Times Literary sub- Supplement, uh, just a real disaster. Um, but. I don't. I don't know. I'm just feeling like it feels like there's some other action or something. I guess we did add women and Nineberry writers of color. Like that's a new thing that happened over the last couple of years. But I'm not sure. I just feel like where do we go from here? Like maybe it's just my own frustration with some of these things haven't moved. I don't know. Do you yeah, hear what I'm I saying? I don't know. The, I think this is like the slow, sticky middle of yeah. a movement. And you're right. Like when Vita started, it did feel radical just for someone to have been like, you want numbers? Here are numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, we got them. The proof is in the pudding. What are you going to do about it? Um, and there was a real push. And I think now we have seen which publications care enough to try to move and which publications have decided that they don't care. And that's demonstrable in the numbers as well. I actually, though, think that the continuing to count really matters. Um, and the addition of women and non-binary writers of color, um, they also have collected information about um, various, about ages and about disability and sexual orientation. Like the intersectional components of the count have a lot of room to grow and to yeah. become a lot bigger. Um, it's also much more challenging because they're collecting self-reported yes. data from writers rather yes. than looking at what's publicly available from a mainstream publication. But I think that I think they should keep counting and make more, perhaps more noise about it. Um, Their challenge, though, is that the publications that have the power to make the most noise about numbers like this are the same publications that are being criticized Mm -hmm. um, and whose numbers are being put up here. So it's difficult to get to grow the megaphone anymore, I think, than where it already is. But I think they need to keep counting and keep drawing attention back to this. And this is like, this is where the real, where real work begins is we have made steps forward, but we are not where we want to be yet. And it's, I think, very easy or much easier to go from, say, like, oh, crap, we only had like 12% women last year. We got to do something. Mm -hmm. Like, you can improve your rate by adding a couple women. That's not very hard. But to get yourself up to parity does take effort. And so I think the real work of like people who care about books and who care that publishing should be inclusive and representative – the real work for us then is to not let it to not let it slide just because things have gotten better. Like they are better, but they are not yet good um, or not yet acceptable. So, okay, great, you got to forty four percent women. How are you going to get the last six? Um, get there. How do you get the last six? You got to 35% women. How are you going to get the last 15? You're at 4% covering, you know, people of color. You can, you can bump that up to 8% by making just a few changes, but how are you going to get to 25 or how are you going to get to 33? Like, Mm -hmm. that's a question that we can ask ourselves at Book Riot is how are we, how are we? Like we already work very hard to do 25%, but if we wanted to come to representative parity of the U S population, what could we do to go those that extra that last step? And those last steps, yeah, I, and, think, and are I the, think, are the most difficult. Your phrase of "this is where the work begins," I think, is kind of what I'm feeling. It's like this feels like the end of the beginning of this kind of work, mm-hmm. and it feels like there's just another stage to happen. And I just wonder if some of it it might be the way the information is presented, because there's a certain there's a certain cover for these publications that the info is dumped like this all at once. 
you know, like, I wonder if maybe every month you do the last 12 months of one of these publications so that you can really put, you know, you really can put the, 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 the microscope on, say, you know, the, the Paris Review, right? Who mm-hmm. one out of 10 of their interviews was women. You know, their famous Paris Review interviews, one out of 10 was women. That's just crappy, right? That, that's, yep. So I, I wonder if some segmentation or breaking it down might be helpful. Like the, the counting and the, pr- the, the presentation of the numbers is absolutely, you know, you couldn't do the rest of the advocacy without kind of advocacy. But I wonder how to action, you know, how to mobilize the data and all the work that they're doing in, in a different way. Because mm-hmm. it, it just feels like every year we get the big blast and then, you know, they retweet some articles and they have some other things. And then we wait for the next one 12 years later. And it feels like the news cycles are just so fast. I mean, forget about Trump. Just like even in the literary internet, there's a lot of news happening all the time. Um, and this time of year, there's also a lot going on. You know, I wonder, I wonder if some pressure on, you know, it's not really women in literary arts. Like, I'm not really, it's been a while since I looked at their mission statement, but like maybe some counting of like the books that are actually coming out is interesting, right? Because um, mm-hmm. this is, Vita is a nonprofit feminist organization committed to creating transparency around the lack of gender parity in the literary landscape, which, I mean, the root of the root here is the books being published, right? I mean, maybe right. that's another step. Like, I'm just not sure. It just feels like there's there's sort of a, we've come to the, the end of this importance. Not the end, but like, is another year of doing it the same way? It's necessary, but is but it I moving the ball forward? I think what you're feeling forward? is like the counting is not sufficient unto itself anymore. Yeah, or or it, it's it's not it is sufficient unto itself, but also other things are possible because of the counting. I guess that's what I'm feeling. Like, yeah, some adjacent yeah. possibles think, are opening up uh, to mm-hmm. use a lang- language we both like. Interesting. Yeah, I've been thinking too about what could be done here, and I think some of the challenge for folks running these publications is you can decide that you want to change, but do you have the freedom from the publisher or whoever is behind your publication? Like, do you have that autonomy Mm -hmm. to make the changes that you need to make? There might be some sort of top level education or consulting to be done. Or like, I think Vita could run workshops for editors and editorial teams um, with Okay, so now you care because we showed that you were crappy at it. Here are some ways that you can work on mm-hmm. getting better. Um, I think some tools, like actually creating and providing tools would be really useful. Um, seeing certainly numbers about what the baseline what the baseline rates are of um, books coming out that are by men and women and non-binary people, by people of color. Um, getting that information would be challenging, but yeah, if they could right. do it, um, that would be, that's another piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. to solving this. And it's closer to the it's closer to the pipeline. Yes. Um, it is. Well, it is the pipeline. It is the pipeline, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then that starts to connect with the piece that we get each year of information from, I think it's the Publishers Weekly salary mm-hmm. survey that goes to gender and race and sexual orientation of the people who work in publishing. And so then you can start to put those pieces together of like, here's who is in publishing. Yeah. Here are the books that they are putting out. And here are the publications that review books and how they do the breakdown and start to put, you know, all those elements together. It almost like now that I'm talking it through seems that Vita and those PW survey people and maybe, um, we need diverse books mm. and the children's book council, whatever. I can never remember yeah, the I know. I can't remember acronym their name for it. 
uh, that does books by and about people of color for children that counts those. Like they should all get together <laughs> and put like the landscape of publishing diversity into some mat, like into one thing, mm-hmm. um, and give you know all the points at the pipeline things to think about. But I do want to not let up on the importance of of just seeing the numbers because like very few publications are doing what I would call a good job yeah. with this. They're just better than they used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, the other, maybe we've talked about this before. Uh, if we haven't, I'd be, I'd be a little surprised. You know, some, some information about the masthead of these publications would be telling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because as you were talking, like what, what's the point here? The point is, to alter sort of the hearts and minds of the people making the decisions about who covers what or who covers whom and how basically, right? Like right. that that's what's trying to be done here. Um, and what is the makeup of the people making the decisions would be telling, right? I mean, yeah. c- is there a straight line between having a full-time editorial staff who are women who are women of color and results showing up in your coverage of women and non-binary authors? Boy, I would think so. I I would think so. And so maybe some of the pressure, some of the transparency that these... I mean, that's what these numbers are really trying to do. They're trying to make transparent something that's hard for an individual person looking at the landscape to see for themselves. That That's the value of this. Like, who is doing what? What do the breakdowns actually look like? Am I just being gaslit by the pop, by, by the culture saying, yeah, there's actually not a problem. You're just blah, blah, blah. No, there is a problem, and here's what it looks like. But but the, the next step of... Well, I don't even know what's next, but another step, another layer of this is who are the decision makers? that can enact change? How can they be, you know, have pressure put on them? How can we know who they are? I mean, I think it's hard to know, especially since some of these reviews, so many of these publications rely on a network of freelancers and things of that nature. Like, how many of these people are repeaters for the New York Times book review? How many of them are repeaters? Like, there's other things you could count too, but if the goal is to change, if the goal is now beyond... I mean, we know this from doing thinking fast and slow. Just showing someone the data is usually not enough to get them to change their habits, right? Like you're going to die earlier if you smoke cigarettes. For most people, it doesn't actually change it. Like you need the different kinds of pressure brought to bear. And I just wonder like whatever pressure can be brought to bear by just showing the publications their own numbers has already happened and change has already happened. I don't want to take anything away from Vita, mm-hmm. but it feels like that move whatever power is behind that move has sort of been baked into these numbers at this point. Does that make sense? Maybe that's, maybe that's what yeah, I'm feeling. It does. You know, and there's like, this is one of those places where like publishing is such an echo chamber mm-hmm. that what one thing that you could imagine doing is like, well, we're not going to quote anything from the New York times until the New York times has representativeness among, you know, men and women reviewers and books reviewed, mm-hmm. or we're not going to link to whatever. Like if, if big publications decided to care about what, other big publications did, or if publishers decided to care about how much, how many advertising dollars they gave. Like if you were like, we're not going to advertise in this publication because Mm. they do a crappy job and don't cover books by people of color. Um, Like things could change then people care about money, but publishing doesn't care as much as it's, as it wants everybody to think it cares about these issues and these publications that are being called onto the carpet are being called into the carpet. And so we're not going to cover yeah. the problem. You know, like the ideal thing is a big piece in the New York times book review about 
gender and race disparity, dis- uh, discrimination, systematic bias, you know, pick your term, but about how this issue exists in the way that books are covered and the way that we talk about books and reading. Yeah. And like, hey, readers, be empowered with data, pay attention to where you're getting your information and how the books that are in front of you end up in front of you. But they're not going to do it because they're part of the problem. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um it's hard to imagine a big publisher using their leverage in that way. I mean, you know, we work with publishers, many of whom are very well-intentioned, and some of them are doing great work. Just not a way that publishing, you right. know, is really, you know, is really put together. Um, another another thing that struck me, too, is, you know, you and I have talked to publicists about, you know, what placements, that you know, what, what are they excited about if they get their author mm-hmm. to do X, Y, or Z? And it realized that in terms of big-time book publicity places... One thing that'd be interesting to see is like, you know, they always talk about getting an interview with Terry Gross, right? Like, I'd like to see that mm-hmm. breakdown. Like, oh, what is the breakdown of the authors yes, that get NPR. a... NPR. or who gets on, um, you know, Seth Meyers does a great job of having authors on, you know, Celeste Eng was on recently, but like, those breakdowns, Charlie Rose, like people who are on to talk about a book, for those non-print, mm-hmm. print, I don't even know what we call these anymore, you know, it's not print, it's like... Text, text-based, you know, <laughs> publications like some of these other big you know, publicity spots are super are, are maybe more influential than all these other yeah, ones put together. I, was say, I think actually, like that's the direction is yeah. start counting the places that make the swing in book sales. You mm-hmm. know, like whatever the current equivalent of an Oprah bump is. Like who was on Seth Meyer? Who was on? Colbert. Um, Who was Reese Witherspoon uh, Instagramming about? Right, right. right. Yeah. Who's Reese Witherspoon Instagramming about? um, Who did they have on NPR this week? Who showed up on the Today Show? Like Mm -hmm. the Today Show does book recommending segments. Um, Actually, this is a miniature rant that I've been wanting to have for a while and now feels like a good time. Let's bring it on. (laughs) <laughs> like a, a, like once a month or so I think I well I think that's how often I see it come up like in my Twitter feed because the people who are on the segments are publicizing that they're on the segments but like once a month or maybe more than that in the summer or like big book seasons I see that the Today Show is doing a like book recommending roundtable with um, three writers and all three of those, it's like the same panel of three writers. And some of you listening to this know who those people Mm. are. Um, Two of them are lovely people. And one of them initiated terrible harassment against writers on Twitter. So two of them are lovely people, Um, but it's three white people and Mm. they recommend books and I've paid attention. And those lists, the books that they recommend are also pretty white. Um, And like, that's the today show, which definitely sells books. Um, So I would love to see a breakdown there. Like you could do some interesting work there among who are they bringing on to talk about books? um, Which books do those people talk about? And, you know, who gets featured on like, um, writers that end up on Mark Maron's podcast, Yeah, you know, that (laughs) would be really interesting. Yeah. Cause it could maybe in some way that also focuses some attention because like, and what I was saying that the decision getting through the the labyrinth of decision making hierarchy that happens even at you know the nation you know like they're big publications but they're not like the U.S. government or something like that where you know there's people you know it's something that maybe Seth Meyers would care about if he looked at it you know and again I don't know if maybe his numbers would be great and they you know they'd be at the top I don't know or Terry Gross it might be if like someone did the count and said you know wrote Terry an email and said I don't know if this is something you pay attention to but if you could you might just think about you know, are you mm-hmm. getting the kinds of authors that represents who you want to have on the show? Because maybe they don't. You know, I have no idea. 
you know, yeah, they, maybe yeah. there is some and needle moving that can be done. Yeah. Maybe the same kind of initial wave of needle, like pick the low hanging fruit. The low hanging fruit is, is not low because it's taking a lot of work. But the first wave of people that, who have ears to listen in this version of the Vita count, I think have already heard. Yeah. You know, I think that that's what we've both been sort of yeah. getting, trying to get to with the like, well, where is this going to go feeling mm-hmm. is also like, most of the publications that Vita covers are not publications that the typical like average reader cares about. Yeah. You know, like the average person who's just who's reading a couple of books a month has not heard of Tin House, doesn't care, right. you know, what the prairie schooner is doing mm-hmm. with gender parody. And so I think if you turn the lens onto bigger outlets that mainstream readers know of and pay attention to because they're watching or they're listening and that they trust um, for recommendations and that they care about, like publishing should care about all of these things, no matter how small the publication is like the smallest publication up to the New York times should all be making efforts to go in the direction of parody. But if we want to talk about what has a potential to make a really big impact, it's, turn that, you know, sort of lens or microscope onto the sources of really big influence. Yeah, like the skim um, is doing book recs now. Like what's their breakdown? Entertainment yeah. Weekly, people, yeah. like, you know, there's... Right. Uh, and again, I don't know, that that's a departure for me, and I don't know, I'm sure they'd have interesting things to say about why they would or would not be interested in doing that, because like the literary arts part in their mission statement is very much, I think that's telling. Like literary arts is different mm-hmm. than wide-scale commercial publishing. Um, doesn't mean they wouldn't be, you know, it doesn't include that, but it may not. It may it may not be the charter. It may be a different version of what they're trying to do that maybe they're not interested. This is what they're interested in, this particular slice of the larger publishing landscape, which is which is fine. Um, I don't want to tell them how to do their business. I'm more reacting to, like, how I'm feeling about the Vita and sort of the new normal mm-hmm. of the count, which the change in the count is they, as they, the, the, the pros description there right sort of seems to also not confirm my feeling but confirm my sense of like the change that is going to happen like we haven't seen as much change of late like we're kind of in a new status quo from this year to from last year to this year especially it's like a percentage point two difference um in a, in a lot of these we're not seeing a big swing of improvement or or, or regression really necessarily so you know, now what? I think, you know, it's, it's, good, it's good for everyone to do a now what uh, at some point. And yep. maybe they're happy with what they're doing. And I, I don't want to say that they're doing a bad job or they're doing something wrong. I don't feel that at all. Mm-hmm. Just like, I'm feeling like, maybe I'm just frustrated that the numbers are, I mean, it could be as simple as that. that the fr- the, 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 I'm frustrated that the air and light that Vita's given to these things has only made so much difference. When it feels like of all the people, you know, the people that write about books, that cover books, should care about this. I'm, to my eternal consternation, um, don't seem to care about as much as it feels like they, they should. You know, I, I expect mm-hmm. better. That's the other part of yeah, it. Yeah, and I think if we were talking about some of the fancier or like shinier places, for lack of a better term, um, like getting on NPR, right. um, we might get people to care just a touch more in a way that could make a difference. I also, like, I do think that Vita shined a light on a thing that really needs to have a light shined on yes. it all up and down the chain in publishing. Um, and whether they expand out to these other media recommenders um, or someone else does it or people in-house at those places start to look and start to care, um, th- that that to me does, it feels like the next the next place. Like who shows up in the Oprah magazine, mm-hmm. you know, and people and EW, all those places. And they have changed um, too, right? Do... Like they, they, have, they have gone beyond their initial 
Vita count. Right. I mean, especially women of color and nine. Oh, yeah. So they, it's a, this is evolving. Yeah, they, 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 I, I know they're thinking about how to proceed. So may, this is spaghetti against the wall, uh, a little bit of like, what now, now what? Now what's next? And you're right, the middle of mm-hmm. these kinds of efforts are always the most difficult part. Um, let's do another sponsor before we get on to more news. Shall we get on to more news? I, I've, yes, I've got to say, I'm cheating on Audible. <laughs> oh, no. Because Libby, man. Libby is a. I'm. I'm. I'm not just the user. I'm the president. Maybe that's the hair club, <laughs> which never works. But anyway, um, so he, that ship has sailed. For you. Yeah, it's right. You just got to embrace it. Uh, so, so here's what it is. Look, Libby is Overdrive's new one tap reading app. So you simply download the free app, put it in your library card number. You'll check to see if your library supports Libby. And you'll be instantly connected to thousands of books on your smartphone or tablet. Um, visit meet.libbyapp.com uh, for more information. There'll be a link in the show notes there. And you can also sign up for a library card as well. Uh, September was National Sign Up for a Library Card Month. I think it's kind of like, you know, people's like, today's National Read a Book Day. And we're just like, <laughs> welcome like to our day. life. I think if you're yeah. listening to the show, every day is go sign up for Libby. I tell you what, it's super Super simple to use. You do all of your audiobook listening or ebook reading in the app. You don't have to like sign up and go out, bounce out to some other app and get authorization, blah, blah, blah. You can manage your holds. Um, I use it on an iPhone 7S, uh, which is the bigger of the two um, last generation iPhones. Now the new ones are out. So you read your ebook right in the app. It looks great. The holds list is really great. Um, it connects to the audio output API. So, you know, when you resume and everything like that, it shows up in the control panel. You can control it from right there. You open the Libby app and it shows what your current read or listen is in like a little oval right in the center. So if you don't want to go like, you don't have to go like hunt through a bunch of menus to find where you were. You just press on the cover image of what you were last listening to and it just starts playing right away. Automatic downloads of your holds list. Your hold list is still determined by the number of holds you can have on your hold list is still determined by your local library. And also what you have access to is determined by your local library system's um, licensing fees. So that's, you know, it, that's something to know is that you're, the same rules of your library still apply. In the case of the Multnomah County Library, I have 15 holds. It, it's a, a constant source of consternation for me because I, I read a lot <laughs> on there. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm on, I'm on like number 10,000 for Dan Brown's origin. It, you know, I, I, anyway, anyway, but but it's there, and I'll know when it's there, and you can see if there's an audiobook version or an ebook version. It's just wonderful, I have to say. Um, it's the library e-reading and digital l- listening app I've always wanted. So go check out Libby. Um, also, if you already use it, I've I've recommended to friends and families who are not, I would say, library power users because it's not a power user move. Where I feel like. In the old days of library apps, it was kind of a power user thing to have to set up. But Libby, you get your library card, you you pound it in, you put in your PIN, and you're off to the races. It also syncs. Um, it can sync, depending on your library system, with your physical holds list as well. So I really recommend it. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's a revelation, frankly, in using your library. So go check out Libby. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. What else can I say? Oh, also, it's, gonna, it's the great American novel, Libby. That's it. <laughs> Gonna be the great. <laughs> That's not right, is it? Selling your selling, past, selling the close? past the clothes. Yeah, selling past the clothes, <laughs> and you threw one of mine up right back at me. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's go on to the next. 
Oh, let's see. We got a lot of stuff. We're not going to hit it all. Do you want to hear, like, a, should we do a twofer of book banning nonsense? No, we got to jump up just because we did skip the biggest book news of the week. I mean, the Vita's big, but George Saunders won the 2017 Man Booker Prize. Just to, you know, if you're listening to this show, you probably already heard that. Um, the second year in a row that an American won, uh, much to my, uh, I have to say, I sort of delighted in the angst of the um, our British uh, listeners and friends and coworkers. They, they're, <laughs> there's a very, there's a, there's, it moved on from displeasure from having Americans involved to I think a real existential crisis among those uh, in the in the larger Commonwealth that care about the Man Booker Prize that Saunders, uh, you know, made it two in a row uh, for Yanks. Um, you know, what I don't know what to say. Lincoln and the Bardo is a great book. It's certainly deserving. I didn't read all the other books. I read Exit West. I think it's the only other one of the five. Also would have been very deserving. At this point, like, you know, none of these books is a loser. It's hard to, it's hard to argue with any one of them on its own terms. Um, I can certainly understand why the Brits, especially the Canadians among us, are like, really an American? And Saunders, too, is like, if you care about literary prizes, like, you've heard of Lincoln and the Bardo, right? Like, the discovery right. angle of this, the Lincoln and the Bardo win is is very difficult to make, uh, even for me. I mean, Exit West, maybe you could have made that case. Like, you know, this is a uh, an author that people haven't known, well, even reluctant. Saunders is certainly more of a darling of the literary community than, than Mosin Hamed. But anyway, so it's... Um, from that level, it, it certainly stoked the flames of like, was this a good idea to, to let the, the Americans <laughs> to the party? We'll see what happens next year. We'll see what happens next year. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's a great book. It's a we, I, the the thing that especially I, I like the book, and I I kind of was pulling for it. I didn't really have a favorite in, in this mix, but like, it's also so delightfully strange. Uh, I don't want to say any more about it, but it's like it's a weird book. Saund- I mean, I know if you know Saunders, you're not surprised. It's a weird book, but like. It's probably one of the stranger books to win the Booker of late. Um, so I, I've been following. I'm you, as you know, Rebecca. I like interesting messes mm-hmm. and strangenesses. Yep. So um, I'm delighted by that feature of the text. But uh, th- that's me. Yeah, I did not make it to Lincoln and the Bardo when it came out because Liberty is such a huge George yes. Saunders fan. She had called dibs on that like months in advance <laughs> um, for that week's episode of all the books. And I just, I was not going to step to her mm-hmm. um, for that. So this is on my pile for when we get to the holidays and I'm just reading through like stuff I missed this year and backlist and, you know, we're doing best of the year kinds of wrap up stuff. Um, there is a beach in my future oh. sometime in the winter, and I think Lincoln and the Bardo is going to be going with me. I was out earlier this week, um, the first couple of days of the week when the prize was announced. And so it was what for me, it was like I came back and this was just on the list of like things that happened this week that I the, the man booker is not one that I usually pay a ton of attention mm-hmm. to. I did think it was weird when they opened it up to Americans, and I also wonder if now they are regretting that choice um but i wasn't I didn't, this is just one that kind of is not on my caring like i don't have enough cares to care about mm. the man booker prize like no shade to anyone who loves it or who cares about it it's just not one of my uh priorities in a year so i was kind of like okay that's the thing we're going to talk about today and now it's the thing that yeah and, and you've said your piece which is mostly yeah. don't care and i haven't read the book so what else, what else, is, there? <laughs> right. what else is there to say that's my piece and i'm sticking yeah to it. uh let's let yeah you're right let's do this censorship junk so we can we can end on some fun stuff rather yeah. than end with this couple just weird i mean not weird the first one is predictable because we see this story a couple of times yeah. a year um this time it's happening in a in the biloxi school district in mississippi which is removing to kill a mockingbird from its junior high reading list because the language, quote, makes people uncomfortable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the vice president of the school board, Kenny Holloway, said there were complaints about it and we can teach the same lesson with other books. Um, the administrator insisted that kids could still go to the library to read the book. Um, so they haven't taken it off the shelves, but they're going to use a, another book in the eighth grade course. And the decision was, of course, um, complaints related to use of the N-word mm-hmm. um, and... We like this is the story. That's that all we, we know. They, they've been very a couple, and it's the yeah. it's the same story that we hear yeah. a couple of times a year. Is um, somebody did not like that Mark Twain was using this word for a very? It's like two hundred and nineteen times. Or no, sorry, I'm not. That's Huck Finn. To Kill mm-hmm. a Mockingbird is by Harper Lee. Yeah. I know things about books. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, um, that To Kill a Mockingbird address is a book about racism and deals with the n-word and is supposed to make you uncomfortable that is the whole point um i think the can like all we this that's all we know about this Mm. um i don't know about the demographics in this high school um frustratingly and i guess very predictably usually when we hear this story it's because white students in a school were uncomfortable with the story or with hearing the word or a white parent was uncomfortable and by proxy was saying it's inappropriate that feels to Um, me like the cliche version of this story right it's not actually a student reporting this it's like some parent saw the book on the table, read it, had read it, mm-hmm. and decided to, to... Now, I could be wrong about this. I could be wrong, but this is the story we've heard over and over again, and I will. it's guilty till proven otherwise that this wasn't white parents, you know, getting in uncomfortable and, mm-hmm. you know, put, putting the wet blanket over... Tr- trying to put a wet blanket over the fire. Um, but this is a fire that's not, go- is not going away. It hasn't gone away since To Kill a Mockingbird was written. It's like... <laughs> You know, I don't know. I don't know what to, I, I don't know what to say about these censorship, these yeah, banning stories. I, I don't know what. I mean, what else is there to say? And there is nothing more to say yeah. about that one. Like we literally hear that story yep. in a different school district about To Kill a Mockingbird or Huck Finn or both. Right. Every year that the book that's intended to make you uncomfortable because it addresses racism mm-hmm. um, makes somebody uncomfortable and then therefore needs to be removed because that discomfort is unacceptable. Yeah. And if it were coming from black students or black parents who are triggered by the very deep historical wounds that those books bring up, I think that is a completely different case. But I have yet to see no. that happen. No. I've yet to see a school be like, oh, yes. We have affected a black student negatively. We're going to take this book off the list. It's just like predictably and very cliche white people feelings mm-hmm. um, that lead to these things. But the bigger book banning story this week comes from this we the have not panhandle. Seen yeah, that I have never, never seen something this, this sweeping yeah. before. The panhandle of Florida. Um, a school board meeting in the Dixie School District, which I promise I'm not making this up, um, issued an administrative directive to the district school directors and the principals that stated, as of September 8th, 2017, no instructional materials, textbooks, library books, classroom novels, etc., purchased and or used by the school district shall contain any profanity, cursing, or inappropriate subject matter. This directive reflects the values of the superintendent, school board, and the community. However, I do realize that AP and dual enrollment classes may have set reading requirements that requirements 
um, that contain questionable materials that the local district does not have control over. These will be the only materials allowed to be used in our district, provided they do not substantially violate community standards. And this was in response to the Ernest J. Gaines, a complaint about the Ernest J. Gaines novel, A Lesson Before Dying. But it has resulted, uh, this language is so broad, no profanity, cursing, or inappropriate subject matter, Mm. which is, of course, intentionally vague as well. Um, There's not an indication here about what constitutes inappropriate subject matter. Um, One imagines also it would be anything that would make a person uncomfortable um, about I about anything, um, but the straight up admission in the directive that this is about the superintendent's values and the school board's values, um, and not this is not pegged to some like educational standard. And they recognize like we might have to relax these because in order to take AP placement stuff, students students do have to interact with difficult materials. Like they're almost saying without saying like we're, we will compromise some educational standards so that no one has to encounter curse words. And that I've just never seen anything this sweeping. It's, uh, it's ridiculous to think your teenagers have not encountered profanity already. You know, there's there's I, the banality of censorship stuff like this. Always, oh, it never fails to, because like they're really talking about literature, right? Like they're not encountering profanity in their chemistry. T- I mean, like they're not even <laughs> they're not even saying the thing they're talking about. Like, okay, so maybe it's instigated by lesson before dying, but it could be any book, like any book that might be interesting to any human, right? That's over the age of 12, has something in it that could be considered inappropriate to somebody because it's about human life. And human life is inappropriate. Interesting mess. Yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's just like, it's all inappropriate. Like, there's no no solid ground upon which to build your church of literary sanctimony. uh, There's just nowhere to go. Like, where is it? Like, the Scarlet Letter? Nope. Like, I'm just trying to think of the things I read in, in... the day no pigs would die, like I mean, old yeller, you're shooting dogs. Like, I, where do you go that there, there, there's a place where you can what be is like, appropriate, this right. is appropriate. Like, appropriateness is so beyond the point of doing literature at all that I feel like I'm speaking different languages than people care about this stuff. Which I guess right. we it are, does seem right? Like- yeah, it does seem though like they might as well have been like English classes canceled. Right, yeah, right. You know, it's all I don't even know what could you even read like Romeo and Juliet, murder suicide, thirteen year old screwing. Like I don't know where you're going. Having sex, you can't. Yeah, no, you're not teaching Romeo and Juliet. That business is not appropriate. Yeah, Hamlet it, is like, patricide. Like I don't know uh, Huck Finn. There's race stuff. Uh, I don't, don't know. even get started on the Odyssey. Like no, that. No, no. You got violence. No. You got yeah. infidelity. You got evil women luring men to their death. I know. <laughs> like, I know. what so can crazy. you? What can you? Can you even read like Puritan sermons? I'm not sure that you can. Like that. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Like Man, I don't and know. You know. You know I love sinners in the hands of an angry yeah. God, but I don't think you can. I don't think you teach that straight faced to people that you're not willing to make uncomfortable because it's also uncomfortable making. Mm-hmm. It's this is you know I think also not an accident that it's in response to a complaint about a lesson before dying, right. which is about a black man who's going to be executed. No. Um, not an yeah, easy book right. to read. I read it in two or three classes in high school, and I have lived 
um, to tell the tale. But you know, this this one is notable for really how broad it attempts to be. I would guess this is not the last that we'll hear no. of this because now they'll have to approach all the specific examples. Um, do teachers have to submit their reading lists and say this has no profanity, no cursing? And I think the appropriate the, or the subject matter is appropriate, but what do you guys think? Like, do they have to get some kind of approval or will it be, I judge this to be appropriate until somebody complains? Like, no, can no, you do, look at can this. you talk no about structural materials purchased and or used by the school shall contain. So this includes yeah. library books. It's not just curriculum, which is something that sometimes when people pull it out of a curriculum, they're like, well, it'll still be available in the library, but we're just not mm-hmm. going to put it on a required leading list, or it's not going to be on the... Right, like that this is, To Kill a Mockingbird story get, from five minutes you, ago. You can't <laughs> even get... Yeah, right. You can't... You're not even get... I mean, theoretically, you can't even get The Handmaid's Tale in the library of the high school. Like, seriously, that's what we're talking about. Like, that. that's what this is. It's, like... It's... This is... It's, it's... They should... They might as well just ban books. Like, all of them. I mean, they kind of <laughs> might as well, or it's banned... That that every book in the library above, like, see Dick and Jane run is subject to summary dismissal at any time because someone could say from the community that this is inappropriate. And basically, as the guideline is laid out here, anytime someone in the community raises the right flag because this, they say here, this directive reflects the values of the superintendent, the school board, and the community. And, like, that's... Look, I'm not one to get on the board with like we're headed towards a fascist nightmare, like whatever. There's things to be worried about, but like let's be let's let's be cool about this. But like the directive reflects the values of the superintendent, the school board, and the community. Like that consolidation of vantage point is one thing that happens in a certain political moment. Mm-hmm. And it's it's eye opening, right? To see because I think that's a thing that's that's that leads well, to this next like, thing is like, we all agree the about the same community? thing. We all agree. We all think right. the same. Ergo, anytime one of us opposes one of these things, that means we all oppose it. And, and it has to be summarily dismissed from, you know, the available pool uh, uh, of resources, which it seems, it's really disturbing. Like, it's really disturbing. This is one of the more mm-hmm. disturbing ones I've seen recently. Um, I don't think there's any question and, about that. You know, uh, there, I assume that they'll be continuing to have a conversation about this in the Dixie School District. Many people um, are responding on the Facebook page of the Dixie County mm-hmm. Advocate, which is one of the local papers. Um, and the piece that we'll link to in the show notes has several examples of those comments, but you can you know, check out the Facebook page yourself um, to see many, many more um, sides of that discussion and where it's going. I... Don't know what I'm th- what I think is likely to happen here. Like this seems like the kind of thing that someone is going to have to you would in a rational world someone would have to walk this back. You yeah. know, like oh, we're going to we will at least create some criteria <laughs> by which you can judge what is appropriate or not. Um or some discussion about literary merit mm-hmm. and discomfort and come to some sort of conclusions but this like sweeping no cursing no profanity no inappropriate subject matter at all in both classrooms and the libraries like um hopefully those librarians are raising hell um, yeah. in the in the Dixie school district about this as well um, hopefully this is not the end of the story um, but really astonishing that uh, this school district the school board finds themselves feeling 
you know, that they have the, the power to make this right. um, statement and, and, and that they are justified in doing so. I think that you're right that at the core of it, this betrays a really fundamental failure to understand what books are and right. what they do, or maybe a deep understanding of what books are and what they do right. because they're you scary. Know, they're so wrong, they're right. You know, like that is transgressive. It right. is potentially right. subversive. Uh, you know, it does undermine the status quo. The right. education is supposed to make you squirm right. sometimes. Yeah, right. Yeah, I could. I, I better. I. I got kink. I got. Yeah, we got to well, stop. Gonna follow, we're gonna follow. <laughs> we'll follow up when we hear more. Um, if you live down there, you know someone that lives down there, and they're inclined to write a letter to comment on a Facebook page. You know, this is the kind of stuff we can do. So go do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get to some happier Happy news, news to end yeah. the show, let me tell you about our last sponsor this week. It is The Lost Causes by Alyssa Embry Schwartz and Jessica Cousid Edding from KCP Loft. Here is the story. They're the last people you'd ask to help with anything, much less a murder investigation. The rich girl, the obsessive, the hypochondriac, the addict, and the hot-tempered athlete lost causes. But with the help of a dangerous serum, the FBI erases the teen's past problems and unlocks a psychic ability within each of them. In return, all they have to do is help find the killer who's turned their small town upside down. The Lost Causes is compulsively readable. It sweeps readers into the place where science fiction and mystery meet. Um, The authors, Jessica um, Cousid-Edding and Alyssa Embry-Schwartz, have been best friends from college who started writing together when they were 23. They sold their first script um, then, and they've had a writing career together ever since. Um, now they live across the country, but they rely on Skype for like eight to 10 hours at a time mm-hmm. <laughs> to write together. Um And with this, they were obsessed with the idea of focusing a book on a group of teens who had been deemed lost causes by the people around them and using that fact to the character's strengths. Because having people discount you can be really devastating, but it can also be a tremendous motivator. And that's the place that the inspiration for the story grew from. Um, The supernatural elements in the book were meticulously researched. The authors love stories about telepathy and ghost sightings and are not skeptics. Um, So it was fantastic for them to be able to introduce that element into the book in a way that they thought was grounded and reflected the stories that they've read about psychic phenomena. And um, they worked with Kate Egan, who was the editor of The Hunger Games. Mm. So pretty interesting stuff going on here. This sounds to me like The Craft meets The Breakfast Club. Ooh, nice. And um, they are welcome. Yeah, that's <laughs> a free, that, that one's free. That comes with the, the ad spot. <laughs> Um, and I'm here for it. Again, it's called The Lost Causes. It's by Alyssa Embry Schwartz and Jessica Cousid Edding. And it is out now from KCP Loft. We will have a link to it in the show notes and you can find it wherever books are sold. So, Jeff, where do you want to go? Take well, me somewhere good. If you're feeling riled up about um Biloxi's Always. polling of To Kill a Mockingbird, um the Florida school district basically pulling uh we have to agree with the book um for in order for a school to buy if, if you're feeling if you're feeling riled up and you don't live there you're not a constituent i got a place you could put some of that um there's a new kickstarter campaign Tell it's me. already funded uh their five thousand dollar goal is was eclipsed but there's still 24 24 days to go the violet valley bookstore um is trying to open the only feminist and queer friendly bookstore to their knowledge in the state of mississippi um so you know they're trying to open a store that is probably i would guess a lot of the books they would carry would be challenged by that florida school board mm-hmm. um <laughs> so this is a place where you could put 25 10 one dollar 50 bucks um 
and fund the a, a place where people can go get books that um, frequently challenge the status quo, uh, encourage diversity of thought and ways of being in the world. Uh, it's been approved as a 501c3 nonprofit agency. There's cash and in-kind donations and are tax-exempt. Um, so this is a good thing to do. So that is definitely that's a, a good place thing. you could you could throw some bucks if you want to. Um, that's one. I don't think there's anything else to say about that. Uh, here's another one um, that's good news. The New York Public Library. This is kind of a thread we followed for the last year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a movement that's gained ground. It seems in the librarian community. Librarians tell us if we're right about this, this, um, or if, or we're seeing some sort of weird sampling error. Or it's been a random... Cl- Why am I thinking about statistics? Just read the darn story, Jeff. Um, the, uh, let's see. The New York Public Library will uh, forgive the... Oh, I'm, I'm looking at the... Did it, You had a different one about the New York Public... About libraries. Did you put this in here? Yeah. No, I got, I'm reading it. I'm, look, I didn't put this in here, but I don't know if you saw this, Rebecca. New York Public Library is forgiving library fines for over 16,000 New York City... Um, kids who have fines on their library card who've been blocked from access so they can yes, they're yeah. gonna get there i put that on the list oh you did i'm just looking i'm looking at the residents one down the way anyway so um if you knew a kid that wasn't using the library because of a fine they couldn't afford to or didn't have the means or support from a family member to go take care of the fines they're being forgiven um and nice. sixteen thousand kids uh interesting and on and on oh there i see it right there and on go another salvo and the ongoing rethinking about how fines and the library should or should not go together, especially around kids, um, especially since kids, you know, they may not have been the ones to not return the book. They don't, you know, especially in New York, if you're an eight-year-old and, you're, and your library is a subway right away, not, easy, not always easy. And, and that's just an extreme example. It's, it's, that's difficult in many communities. But um, in New York, it's especially difficult for a kid who's checked out a book as a library card in their own name um, that may be racked up a fine that blocked them from getting access to materials. I'm not sure what the ongoing policy is going to be. Um, I didn't remember it from the article, if they're going to change just how fines and if or when they're assessed. Um, It's a one-time amnesty for now, underwritten by the JPB Foundation. I want to shout them out, which will make up $2.25 million of the shortfall in revenue from the forgiven fines. I I don't know if how you count, is that really, like how much of this would they actually expect to get back? Like, of ex- I, I bet libraries oh, know question. stuff like this. Like, what's their expected matriculation on those fines? Like, I'm sure some of it would just never be paid. Uh, I would guess. But well, anyway, and, you know, remember last year when I was working yes. at my courage to go back to the library after like a decade of thinking yes. I had a million dollars in in overdue fines. Um, it turned out that when I got there to pay them. I didn't have anything to pay because at least in my county, when it hits a certain point, they just tack it onto your property taxes. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So I paid it, but I have no idea how much I ended up paying and it wasn't even like broken out in any way that was noticeable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how it works um, in since New York. Tw- so you could, if that happens, it's a hundred percent eventually, but yeah, right. This says it's a one-time amnesty. And if you have a book that hasn't been returned, and you get the amnesty, but you still haven't returned it, the fines start accruing immediately. So it's it comes with some caveats. Um, okay. We'll forgive all fines for children 17 and under and unblock their cards. Um, yeah, right. There you go. 
wow, listen to this. At the Hamilton Grange... If you've got a million dollars At the Hamilton to- Grange Library in Hamilton Heights, a Manhattan neighborhood where around half the school-age cardholders have their borrowing privilege suspended because of their fines. Half of the kids that have a card there ha- had suspended wow. because of fines. Um, one, one parent, Miss Beckford, said that between her family and work, she and her husband often forget to remind the children to return their books, but her house is filled with readers. She said, we have books everywhere in our house. This is a really, this is a tricky one to navigate, it seems to me. That I, is. I think if you've got a million dollars to give away, maybe amnesty uh, to a library is a cool, cool yeah, thing to do. Right. Get some kids back in the doors. Um, one last note for our friends at libraries. I think this is really this awesome. This is cool. The Library of Congress announced this week that they're doing a Librarians in Residence pilot program for recent graduates of Library Information Science Master's programs. We know some of y'all listening to this show fit mm-hmm. that bill. The application opens November 1st, and the pilot program offers career librarians, early career librarians, the opportunity to develop their expertise and contribute to building, stewarding, and sharing the institution's vast collections. Um, the library will select up to four applicants for a six-month residency that begins next June in 2018. It's open to students who will complete their master's degree in an American Library Association accredited library information science program no later than June 2018, or who completed a degree no earlier than December 2016. So they're pretty tight there on what an early career librarian will be. Um, the pro, it, there's details about the government compensation level that will be offered here and the kind of information and um, experience that you could get. But if you are a new librarian or you're about to be a new librarian and you would like to you know, hang out with Carla Hayden for six mm-hmm. months and get some experience at the Library of Congress, you should definitely check this out. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. All right. Let's end there. On, on a high note. Okay. Good things. It's a good note. Good things. Um, two steps forward, two steps to the side, back, other ways. <laughs> Hard to know. Boy, I'm worked up about that Florida thing. Uh, you can find show notes to this I and know. all back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Uh, if you've got, let's see what I was asking. Oh, librarian people. Um, I'd like to know about my sense of um, the, the worm turning about fines and kids. Is this a new thing? Is it gaining momentum? Am I just selectively, you know, am I got a sampling area? Have I motivated reasoning to see this? But let me know. You have your feet to the, uh, you have your, your feet on the ground. Another follow up thing. A lot of people respond. I asked um, on the show about when we talked about the MacArthur Genius Awards whether or not the award um, awardees in other fields were high profile in their fields, like you know, Jasmine Ward, um, for example, was in our field. And the response I got largely was yes, that they're equivalently well-known in those fields. Um, I got uh, theater, architecture was one. Um, There's another one. Uh, Anyway, but the response I've gotten so far from people that were responding from that know about other fields was saying, yeah, these are pretty well-known people. So that's just some feedback that I asked for. Thank you guys so much for writing in there. Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.